we'll again be in Second Peter. That should come as no surprise to you. We have been going through, actually we only just started the book, and uh, we are jumping right back in where we left off. This last time we were together, uh, we were just in verses 1 and 2 of this book in Second Peter, and today we're going to bite off a little bit of a bigger chunk, but there's a reason for that. It all comes together in one uh, paragraph of thought, and that begins in thought begins in verse 3 and makes its way all the way down to verse 11. My Bible has a heading confirming your calling and election. You might say the exact same thing or something similar, or nothing at all, right? But there is a, there is a paragraph of thought there beginning in verse 3 going down to verse 11. If you're like me, though, you're probably familiar with the notion, uh, kind of an illustration that is often more or less given in, in song, that the Christian life is like boarding a train. Anybody ever heard that like that? Anybody heard the, maybe you've heard the song, the gospel trains are coming. Uh, I hear it just ahead. I hear the car wheels rumbling and rolling through the land. And then the chorus, I'm sure you've heard. I'm not going to sing it for you if you thought that's what was about to happen. That's not going to happen. Get on board, little children, all that, all right, get on board, little children. I, I remember singing that as a kid, and uh, even with a little chorus, and we even had gospel train whistles to go along with it, which made it super cool. Now, I want you to think about that for an analogy for a moment, because unfortunately, the idea, this kind of analogy may be somewhat unhelpful, quite frankly. Because the idea of getting on board a train and the gospel train, it, it carries the notion that I basically get on at a terminal at some point, I get saved, and then that gospel train just carries me all the way to my final destination when I get into heaven, and I don't have to do anything in the meantime. I just get on on Terminal 9 and get off at Terminal Heaven, and I'm all good. That's kind of how the idea is. It, it, and it really, it compartmentalizes and it creates in the minds of people that once boarding the train by faith, we then sit back in our compartment and are just whisked along our journey until we finally arrive at glorification and we skip a whole middle part commonly called sanctification. But the New Testament paints a very different picture of our spiritual journey. It really does. Not that it turns us to the other extreme, whereby we wrestle in our own strength to give and get on board, not that it paints it to that extreme, but rather it paints the picture that now energized, if saved, then energized by the power of God, we are to add to our faith that which is consistent with the progress made, which is indicative of a true, lasting relationship with God. Put it a different way. We are not saved by works, right? Nobody here is preaching that. But we are saved unto good works. Does that make sense? So there's a progress there. There is a progression there. We are not saved by works. But once saved, we are saved to good works. Use a different extreme, because sometimes extremes can help us. If, if, if all God wanted to do was for you to get on board the train and then wind up in heaven then once saved, why did he leave you on earth? Right? I mean, I mean if, if his goal was just to save you and then get you to heaven, then once saved, why not just whisk you right then on into heaven? Now, if you are with me and today alive, and you are saved, I think it's fair to ask the question, what does God want you to do right now? The other question, to use another extreme, is, if all God wanted to do was save your soul then why include all this other stuff in the Bible that may not just be about salvation? Because there's certainly a lot of other stuff in there about do's and don'ts that Christians aren't supposed to do. If all, or not do, if all there was necessary was salvation, why all this other stuff? All those are worthwhile considerations. And so it's not that you just get saved and then you're whisked to heaven there is something you must do, and that's what this section of Scripture is all about. He begins his reading in verse 3, it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, 
having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and with virtue, knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness, godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted, that he is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be rightly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, we need to highlight something I've already said that I now write on the screen. Not saved by works. That's not at all what this passage is saying. But it is saying saved unto works. Or if you want to fully spell that out, saved unto good works. Now, I rightly say that to you because I think we need to review something. And we need to review verses 1 and 2 just for a moment to understand more fully what verses 3 through 11 are saying. In verses 1 and 2, Peter introduces us with a very clear indication of something about who he is. In fact, in verses 1 and 2, Peter, in his introduction, is very clear in a day that has become preoccupied with status, that status is not important. What is most important is a relationship with Jesus. And quite frankly, he goes a step further and acknowledges that even for the apostles, that status that we as churchmen might think of as elevated wasn't all that elevated in their mind and certainly not in the minds of those during that time. Because as soon as he introduces himself, he immediately recognizes that he says, my name is Simon Peter, but what you need to know about me is, first of all, even before I say I'm an apostle, I'm a servant. That is important to me. And so in a day and age that is so elevated status, that's all we see, Simon Peter is saying, first of all, I'm a servant, but I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. And Peter combines here in, in doing this introduction where he talks about both his servanthood as well as his apostleship, what Peter is doing is Peter is combining, and you can see it clearly, here we see humility and here we see authority. And I want you to notice which one comes first. Humility comes first. Now he's combining the two concepts, but humility comes first. But the reason I review with you for a moment is because of what he says in verse 1. He says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who obtained a faith of equal standing. This is very significant. Yes, in a day and age where status is elevated, including that of apostles, apostles were certainly viewed as high and leaders in the church, and Peter is saying that they are of equal standing. Now, this word that's being used here is, is a word we can see in verse 1, and, and uh, Paul is saying to those who have received, and, and there's, there's the word that's being used, uh, this equally precious, this equal standing, and actually this, this very word that's used, isotamon, uh, is a u- word that's a political word in that time. It's a political word. It was used primarily in that time to refer to foreigners that might enter into a new country. So, for example, you'll read in history books of those in Antioch who were told that they now had equality with the Macedonians. And there's this equal standing. And they're making sure that they know that now that they've entered in, there's an equal standing. It's a, it's a political word referring to equality of equal standing. And what Peter is saying when he uses this word here is that nobody has more precious faith than the other person. Like it's not as though Peter, he's saved, and he's like on this tier of salvation, 
and then maybe Paul is up there with Peter and James and some of the others, and then there's like a lower tier next to it where maybe we would put Timothy on that next class of citizen and Titus and others, and then we might make our way down to wherever we view ourselves on that great scale of of different levels of faith, And Peter is saying, no, there is equal footing at the foot of the cross. So if I have come to Christ through faith, it's the same faith, if I have been saved, that I have, that I could actually trace back and say that Peter had, and likewise I could also say that anybody else who's living right now has. It's all the same faith. Does that make sense? So Peter is writing that. That's an important acknowledgement then as we come to verse 3. Because if he is saying you have obtained, remember, who is Peter writing to? And it's answered in verse 1, but I'll ask it right now. Who is Peter writing to? He's writing to believers. These are people who have already been saved. How do I know he's writing to believers? They have obtained the faith, right? That's who he said. I'm writing to those who have obtained the faith. Now, to those who are saved, here comes the admonition in verse 3. And I'm going to go ahead this time and give you our very simple outline. And sometimes we'll break it apart together one by one. But I'm going to give you all of them at the beginning, and then you can follow along with me. Does that sound good? So we'll start with the provision. We'll start with the provision. And we'll find the provision in verses 3 through 4. That's where the provision is. And we'll start with the provision, number one. And number two, after we look at the provision, we're going to look at the progress. The progress. And we'll find the progress in verses 5 through 9. And then finally, we'll conclude our time together, number three, by looking at the prospect or the future. And we'll find the prospect in verses 10 through 11. So let's start with the provision. And the provision is found in verses 3 through 4 when he says... His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And he is speaking of that which has been made available to believers and to believers only. Here's what he says. Immediately he says, to, according to his divine power, through the, and here's how we know he's talking about believers, through the knowledge of him who has called us. When Peter and Paul, and for those of us who were in Philippians and we looked at the word knowledge before, what is significant about knowledge in scripture, especially the knowledge of him? What is that referring to? It's referring to an intimate understanding, right? It's different than just facts, right? It's not just, uh, anybody ever met someone that's just the, the, the whiz at just knowing random trivia, right? Just, just like totally random stuff, but somehow they, they can out, you know, trivia anybody in the room. There's just certain people that just have a brain for keeping memory of just weird facts, right? My, my sister's like that. She can just, I don't know, just somehow there's like an extra place in her brain to store a bunch of random facts that the rest of us would forget. That's not what he's referring to when he's referring to knowledge. He's not just referring to to head knowledge. This is a a deep resetted understanding, and this is why as Christian, he's really talking about an experiential knowledge, an experience. It's because we are looking for those things, not in isolation of knowing Christ, just facts, but an experience And in Jesus, he says, we have everything you need. We have everything we need, all things, in fact, he says. You have all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things. Now, what he's not saying is not everything that I want, right? But everything that I need. Not everything that I want, but everything that I need. Now, our society has set the level of need at a very different point, haven't we? We think we need certain things. And I think if we had like a list of needs to survive, our list would probably very different, have a very different list 
than what our grandparents had or our great-grandparents had. Wouldn't you agree? My dad, even when he visits Florida, says the thing that populated the South more than anything else was the air conditioner. And I think he's probably right about that. But I don't know if prior to the AC, they would have had that on their list of needs. Uh, we as a congregation have suffered through a couple Sundays where there was no air conditioner in our auditorium and we were rather uncomfortable. And we might have said we needed that, but we understand that's not a need. He's not saying all of our needs, uh, all of our wants, rather, but what of all of our needs. And we have imbibed the notion that faith in Jesus goes along with health, wealth, and happiness. And we assume that anything less than health, wealth, and happiness is less than what God intends. That's not what this verse is implying. What this verse is implying is that his divine power has given to us all things. And let me ask you to just look with me for a moment and ask yourself this question, who is the his or the, or the him here? or his own glory. Who is that that is being referenced? Now, you could say God, and and obviously you'd be right, but specifically, Jesus. Jesus. And you can see that up here. You see that in the verse preceding? It's his speaking of Jesus. Now, I cut you off, Steve. You're saying something. Uh, Well, yeah. It's capital in the first one because it's the beginning of the sentence. Um, There's a tradition that's come about, it's kind of an interesting one, we'll we'll chase that route for a second, where we do capitalize the first letter of a a neuter, like a a word like him or his, if it's referring to God. There are different sides of the debate whether or not you should even do that. Um, Obviously the original languages didn't do that. I respect the respect that that may have and the intention of reverence, so I do it when I write. But yeah, they didn't do it here. But it is, in fact, referring to to Jesus. If my life should end today, think about it this way, and I'm a believer, I have everything that I need for eternity. That's what he's saying. And if my life should go through a trial of any magnitude, I have everything I need to follow him. That's what that verse is saying. John Wesley put it this way, in, my, in want, my plentiful supply. In weakness, my almighty power. In bond, my perfect liberty. My light in Satan's darkest hour, my help and stay whene'er I call, my life in death, my heaven, my all. That's Jesus. So when he says all things, granted all things that pertain to life and godliness, what is that all? It's referring to all that is in him. Let me ask you, is Jesus enough for you? Or do you somehow need something more? Jesus is enough. But he continues, he says in verse 4, he says in verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. May we allow the great promises of God to so grip and guard us that they allow us to be the very people we ought to be. Here's a fun exercise, so help me out. What are some of the very great and precious promises of God? Rebecca? He'll never leave you or forsake you. What are some others? Eternal life. What are some others? Only two tonight? <laughs> What's that? Provision. Provision, absolutely. What are some others? Presence of the Holy Spirit. No pain or suffering in heaven one day. Love, Love of God. Peace. Peace. Steve. Yeah, all things work together for good. Have you ever, here's, a, here's an exercise, right? Just taken out a pen and paper and written down the promises of God. Just, and start at the heading and just number them. Just keep going. You'll be there for a while. Now, why did God give you these very great promises? By the way, the, the promises of God 
guarantee and are guaranteed in the security of Jesus. But why did he give us these promises, these very great promises, so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature? Now this is some heavy stuff here for a moment. When we accept Christ as a believer, not only are we adopted into the family of God, but we are also regenerated by the Holy Spirit and thus become partakers of the very divine nature of the Godhead. Now that is heavy. By the way, it brings us into a great segue into our series on the Holy Spirit that we'll be looking at because we'll cover this. And I commend to you that study on that subject because we will cover that. But did you understand that believers are not just members of God's family, but partakers of God's nature? Wow, I mean, I, I don't know if we can fully plumb the implications of that in one fell swoop this evening. But notice what does happen, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world. Now, why is there corruption in the world? And he tells us why there is corruption in the world because of sinful desires. Why corruption? Why evil? Why murder? Why stealing? Why can't spouses get along? Why can't friends get along? Why disputes in the workplace? Why road rage? Why, where did all that come from? Why does all that exist? Sinful desires. Now, how, can, how does a Christian live every day in a world confronted by evil desires, both from the outside and from their own still corrupt spirit? Why is it that we have such a battle with such desires? How do we overcome and escape evil temptation? Let's say you or your friend are struggling with an ongoing perpetual sin problem. Just whatever that may be. I can't overcome it. I keep finding myself going back to the same poisoned well. What do I do? What is my solution? What should I instead think on? How do I overcome sinful desires? We've got faith. Go backwards a little bit. Through the very great promises of God. I meditate on the very true and great promises of God. Through his great and precious promises and the provision through them is ample. That's why it's a, a fun activity actually to write out the promises of God and their references. It might be, I might encourage you to do that. Even as a couple, have your own commentary on the promises of God that you put together as you studied God's word. And what you'll find is they are ample. So what do I do if I'm struggling with sin? And how do I counsel my friend who might be struggling in sin? What do they meditate on? What should they think about? What should they dwell on? The very great and precious promises of God. That is the provision that has been afforded to you, number one. But let's continue with the progress. This is the prospect, um, or, or, or the, uh, the progress. And, and, and by the way, ample provision is matched by progress. And that's why he says, when he comes to verse 5, when he, he comes to verse 5, as he talks about this ample provision that is matched by progress, he says, for this very reason, and this highlights the very great danger of what I would say is picking and choosing Bible verses. There is great danger in that. I, I, I could take this text and say this evening, I'm just going to preach on verse 5, but if I did that, I might miss something. Very dangerous to just pick the verses out of their context and think, well, I'm still getting a truth. And you might get a truth that just not be the truth that's being conveyed here. Here's the easiest truth you'll learn this evening. Verse 5 comes after verses 3 and 4. All right? 
Pretty duh, right? So here's what he's teaching. What we become in practice, we are rather to become in practice what we already are in God's sight. So God has provided something for us. That's verses three and four. God now wants us to put into practice the progress of what we have by provision. Here's another way of looking at it. God never asks you to do something without providing you with the tools and resources to do that something. So he says here, for this very reason, put it this way, because God has gone to this great extent to make this provision for you, you must make every effort to do something. That's exactly what he says in this. For this reason, make every effort. Do this. And you are to, and the, and the ESV uses the word to supplement your faith. And I actually, in this particular case, prefer the KJV when it says, add to your faith. Add to your faith. And I understand why the ESV is going to, with the supplement idea. Let me show you the word itself in verse 5 when it talks about this idea of supplement. And here's the word. Epicorgus is the root. It's a word that comes from the drama festivals of Athens. All of the dramas and things that would have happened in Athens. And there were men in the drama festivals who were called Epicorgans who were responsible for supplying the resources for the choruses that took place during these drama festivals. And there were actually rivalries amongst these Epicurians of who could provide the most resources to give the best choruses at these drama festivals. And there would be rivalries about them, and there would be money poured into these events, and they would go above and beyond to give their choruses all the best resources to make their particular choruses the best that they could be. And the word referred to generous and costly, this word that's now being used by Peter, referred to generous and costly additions so that whatever that chorus was could be the best possible chorus it could be. Now what does that imply here when Peter uses it in a spiritual context? And Peter says to you, add or supplement to your faith these things. What is, what is, he, saying? What is he saying here? Give your very best. There is to be for a believer a generous, and we might even add costly, cooperation with God so that we might bring him glory. And I think in our culture's churches, Christian American churches, we have missed that, right? In fact, we get to this idea where we are to make every effort, and that's where it talks about in this verse, when it talks about making every effort, this verse here, make every effort. And some of us have a problem with phrases like that because we are still living in the gospel express. And everything that says we need to make an effort, we don't know what to do with. Because we thought, again, get on platform nine and we're not stopping until we get to heaven. And we figured, you know, I'm, I don't need to do anything else. Like, I'm already saved. But now we have verses that say, make every effort. And we have other verses from Paul that say, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And this is the end of the line of theology, really, that we're confusing. It's the end of the line of theology that many have heard that basically says, let go and let God. You ever heard that phrase? It's not a biblical phrase. You've heard it. Just let go and let God. Human effort, though, to grow in God's grace is inadequate. That's true. Human effort, you cannot do this apart from God's grace but it is also indispensable. You, you must do it. 
Until we understand that, many believers will hardly do anything to get something done. You ever heard the phrase, leaders don't move parked cars, they steer moving vehicles? It's the same true for God, our leader. Let, 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 let me use an illustration this way. Like, let's say this evening, you go home and you're watching television, and suddenly something comes on your TV that is wrong. It's bad. It's just, you just know it. Are you going to sit there and think, you know, if the Holy Spirit didn't want me to watch that, the Holy Spirit would change the channel. <laughs> but because nothing's happening, I guess I'm okay. In my life, I have never had the Holy Spirit change the channel for me, right? I've never been in a theater with trap doors under the seats that just usher all the Christians out if something bad comes on. That's not how that works. Why is it that we think, that in the Christian walk, that we can operate that way? Well, if God didn't want me to do it, he would have removed it from my path. Maybe God just wanted you to go around. That's what's being conveyed. Make every effort. One cynic referred to Christianity in this way. He was cynical in his assessment. He said Christianity is an initial spasm followed by chronic inertia. (laughs) And unfortunately, there are many so-called believers that are like that. But beginning in verse 5 and going down to verse 9, we have what what theologians commonly call the the ladder of virtue. The ladder of virtue. And you can see how he's doing it. You've got to add to this, and then you add to this, and then you add to that. And this is what theologians commonly called the ladder of virtue. And I want you to remember that, because sometimes everybody knows about the fruit of the Spirit, and you can quote them for me, right? Probably a better one, a good one for you to memorize, if you already had the fruit of the Spirit memorized, someone needs to write a ladder of virtue song as well, because this is something that he wants you to do. And, and he lists them for us, and uh, just for a moment, I'm going to erase those words so we can write them down. And he lists them for us, and there are eight ladders of, ladders of virtue uh, that are listed here in these verses. There are eight of them. And it begins, it, it begins number one, first of all, with faith. Why start there? <laughs> you can't have anything else without this one, right? It'd be like starting to build your house without the foundation. It's just not going to happen. You've got to have a foundation first. And faith is foundational. But I add to my faith, someone give me number two. What is the next rung on my ladder? I add to my faith virtue. virtue. What is virtue? Moral excellence is a very good way of putting it. The word used there is a word that also used to refer to land that would have been fertile in that time. That's what the word that's used here. Fertile land. So add to your faith fertile land is what he's saying. Now what would, be, what would that convey? Add to your faith fertile land. What is it saying? Now This one you should get, because we've been in the Gospel of Mark in the mornings, (laughs) and we've looked at the parable of the soils, and we looked at the sower and the seed. What is the seed? The word. The The seed is the word of God. So add to your faith fertile soil. What what does that convey? A receptive heart. That I would receive the seed, which is the what? The word, and it would grow. So add to my faith fertile soil, virtue, and to virtue, knowledge. Now, we've already looked at knowledge a little bit here. There are many different words that could be used for knowledge, and this particular time, and I'll come back to this uh, chart again, but maybe for some theologues in the room, it may interest you to know that the word now used for knowledge is the word gnosis. What is that Ring, ring a bell. Gnostics. Gnosticism. Now, what was the Gnostics, what was their big problem? Anybody remember? Had to know something special. Had to know something special. 
and there was like this special kind of intimate knowledge that they had, and there was an experiential unlocking that you had to have to get there. Now, Peter's not preaching false Gnosticism, but I do bring that up because he's, he's using that word that would have alerted them to something. What does he explain? When he says knowledge and he talks about gnosis, that's the word he chooses to use here, he is talking about adding to your fertile soil now an experiential understanding relationship with Jesus. Now, when you got saved, for those of you who have been saved for many years, did you have a knowledge of salvation at that point? I hope you say yes to that. <laughs> but if you've been saved for many years, and you've gone through the journey of life, and the ups and downs, and you've gone through trials, would you agree, I trust, that there is a knowledge that you now have that is deeper than maybe the childlike faith under repentance that you had at the beginning? So add to your faith fertile soil, which grows into an experiential knowledge. Is it possible to be saved and not have this kind of knowledge? It is possible to have a childlike faith that doesn't yet grow all the way. For this reason, you may have met someone who's been saved for six months and already is just totally on fire for God, and you met someone else who's been saved for 60 years and doesn't yet know how to go to church on a regular basis. That's what they're saying. He's saying, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge what? Temperance or self-control. Add to your faith knowledge and to knowledge now self-control. What's he referring to when he says self-control? The word here is a word literally used to, to describe basically get a grip. <laughs> we used to do this in basketball to one another, right? Be running down the court and someone bounces a bounce pass to you that was like not great, and you turn back to your teammate and go, get a grip, right? Come on, we're trying to play a game here, and you keep turning the ball over, right? That's the idea. Get a grip, you know? Kind of pull yourself together. Self-control pretty well communicates exactly what he's saying, self-control. And to self-control, what do you add? Steadfastness, or we could say perseverance. Perseverance. It's the ability to hold fast to one's goal in spite of opposition. That's what he's saying. Now, there's going to be opposition. In fact, Jesus promises that, does he not? In the world, they will hate you. They hated me. Don't be surprised. But add to perseverance or steadfastness, what do you add? Godliness. Now some get tripped up here and they think, godliness, I, thought, I feel like godliness should be like way at the beginning of the list. What is godliness here? Remember, this is, an, this is the ladder of virtues. So you're climbing a ladder. And godliness, godliness now refers to a practical awareness of God in every department of life. A practical awareness of God in every department of life. Now, for those of you, again, who've been saved for some time, even just a matter of time, when you got saved, there was a motivating conviction of the Spirit that drew you to Christ. Now, there were aspects of salvation that are true and righteous and godly that I trust as you grew, you get to know God more, and now you realize, you know, my Christianity affects my workplace, and now it affects my relationship with my spouse, and now I've got kids, and it affects my relationship with my kids, and then my kids have grandkids, and it affects my relationship with my grandkids, and then it affects, you see what I'm saying? So as I'm growing, I'm developing godliness. You're understanding that every area and every department of life is affected by that. And I add to godliness what? Brotherly. brotherly kindness. Now, brotherly kindness. Add to godliness, brotherly kindness. And Brother Ron, you can get this one. Right? You know what bro word brotherly kindness is? The city of brotherly love is? 
That's right. <laughs> there, he's a Philadelphia Phillies fan, right? Yeah, and an Eagles fan. This is that word. This is that word. This is the word Philadelphia. Brotherly kindness, brotherly love. Now, why is this after godliness? What do you think? If I'm adding to my scope, if I'm at, that's right. If I'm adding to my scope, every aspect of my life, you know what's the hardest thing? One, one of the first true signs of maturity that you don't see yet in the toddler room <laughs> is a great job working with others. Right? Now, maturity isn't disguising your ability to work with others because that's kind of what we get to be better at. We, we, we get to be better at being mean behind people's backs. That's not a good thing. Brotherly love now goes beyond that. It goes a step further. It says, I, I understand. And, and to brotherly love, or we could say brotherly kindness, I add love. Now, students of God's word and scripture, you might be able to guess which love word he's using here. This is agape love. This is a wholesome biblical love. And do you see the ladder of, afflic- uh, of affection here, the ladder of virtue? It begins with faith, and it ends with love. And in between, there is all that we require to work it out for living in society. And because we are partakers of the divine nature, we are to be possessors of this divine quality. And verses 8 and 9, he continues, if you can come over to here to verses 8 and 9, where he says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So the growth of these qualities confirms salvation. What do you do with someone who's saved, and coming back to our list, and never becomes good soil? What do you do with someone like that? Or never develops in knowledge? Doesn't have self-control, doesn't have perseverance, godliness, brotherly love, and eventually even agape love. What is that? Well, that's like the seed that we read about in the parable of the sowers, or the soil, that did spring up, but it was quickly withered out. So he says, this is, if these qualities are lasting, they are assurance of salvation. That's what that is. A life of steady progress should characterize the Christian. His radiant life should be the silent clue of God's election, or God's salvation. But then we end in verse 10 through 11, in the prospect Really quickly, in verse 10 through 11, it says, Therefore, brothers, be, th- therefore, brothers, he says in verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the prospect of a rich welcome into the kingdom of heaven. And the wording he uses here, is picturesque. And the picture he is painting is that of an, of an Olympic athlete who won something, who now returns home from the Olympic Games. And at that time, there would have been a parade to welcome that home. And if they had won significantly, they would have actually broken open another wall in the city to make broader the gates to welcome this guy home with great fanfare, very excited. That's the picture here. Why do I climb? We're not trying to climb the ladder of this world, (laughs) right? The the ladder of, of this world in the business sense. But we are trying to climb the ladder of virtue. Why? Because I I do want to come to the kingly pearly gates of my God. And I do want to hear my God say, well done. That's the prospect. It's a pretty exciting prospect for that matter. Say, well, that's a pretty lofty list to attain to. Why would I do that? Because of this prospect. The prospect of a rich 
welcome into the kingdom of heaven awaits those who practice these. So very quickly, we've looked at the provision, the progress, and the prospect. Questions, comments, discussion as we close. I, I just did a great job this evening. Or you guys are being easy on me this evening. Pastor Paul. I know it's splitting here. In verse 3, you said through the knowledge of him. Yes. Reserves to, reserves to, and reserves to Jesus. Yes. Why not God? This was knowledge of God and of Jesus. Well, it, w- it would be in that sense referring to both, I guess. Because the next phrase is yeah. to all this to his own glory and excellence and yeah. more God than Jesus. Um, Yes, yeah, yeah. I, 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 no, but I think you're right. That's good. And the others. We'll look at the mystery of the Trinity uh, in our series on the Holy Spirit, by the way. We have to. We look at the Holy Spirit. I think that the Holy Spirit might be the most confused person in the Trinity for many people. Yes. Brother Bob. So as you go up this ladder, yes. then what happened, I think, what you thought were trivial little things actually being acts of God. Yeah, that's and, very true. And, and, and so, so now your, your adoration yeah. just, just broadens. Yeah. Because you, you, you thought, what? that was just something insignificant. Oh, no, it wasn't. It was something beautiful. There was a, uh, around this time of the year, I visited a church when I was traveling in evangelism, that around the Thanksgiving time, a lot of churches will have like a Thanksgiving service or the like, and they would have a service called, they called it Tracing the Fingerprints of God. And the whole purpose of that service was for members to think back over the last year over those like trivial things and lessons learned along the way that God has taught you and praise the Lord for the growth that you've been able to see in your own life because of lessons God's taught, taught you through his word. And that was a pretty cool service to preach at, quite frankly. But just to hear everybody sharing was pretty neat. That's a good exercise, by the way, for Thanksgiving, if you haven't thought about it. Oftentimes we share praises and things we're thankful for, which is good. Sometimes it's just to go look back and be thankful for what God taught us. And uh, you're right. Some of those, as you progress in that letter, you might look back and say, at the time, that didn't seem all that important to me. And now I see exactly what God was doing. He, He put that in my path or took that out of my path for a reason. Any others? Yes. That's a really challenging one. And she asks, what if someone just, they, they say they would say, but they just stop at the first rung and they never progress. Honestly, we have no reason to have confidence in their salvation if they stop at the first rung. Um, I, I never want to give someone, as a counselor or a friend, I never want to give someone assurance of their salvation if there's no assurance to be had. So if I'm looking at someone and, and, and they would hopefully at that point even be able to admit, like, yeah, I, I have no desire for the things of God, opening the scripture, being around Christians, going to church, like any of the normal virtues of a Christian life that just just absent from them, then my conversation with them is to actually just give them the gospel because the first rung is faith. And the question then becomes, if they haven't progressed past the first rung, which is faith, have they even stepped on the first rung, which is faith? Now, we have to be careful because ultimately only God knows the heart. It's never our place to say whether someone's saved or not. That's never our position. But God does give us uh, clear indications to say, by their fruit you shall know them. So we can look at fruit and we can observe and say, That's, I don't see any fruit. Now, frankly, it's easier to observe ugly fruit and say, well, that's not what Christians do, um, than it is to say absences of fruit. When it comes to absences of fruit, that's a harder line to draw, but it is a scary one. And if you've got a friend or a loved one that's like that, I think the best way we can do is actually to give them the gospel again and again with as much grace as we can, because that's unfortunately the hardest person to reach with the gospel because they feel like they're safe, and maybe they're not. Yeah, Paul? 
the scripture tells us that we've been made a new creature. Sure. And if, if it's the same old creature. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Old things have been gone away. Behold, all things are become new. If you're still doing all the same old stuff, it's not to say that we become perfect overnight either. Right? That's why I appreciate the ladder there. We're not, we're not going to all become Paul overnight, but there should be progress. I think I've, I've shown you the, the chart. Right? Uh, I, I'll draw it for you again. This is my uh, long-used chart. Um, so we say this is our, our, our time or our, our, our time that we've been saved, how long we've been saved, and this is our growth. Have anybody seen my chart before? All right, I'll show it to you again. So this is my time, how long I've been saved. This is my growth. And I'm measuring uh, Christ-likeness. So this growth in Christ-likeness. And, uh, how, and I've said before, how, what would be the top of my Christ-likeness chart? <clears throat> it can't be Christ. Because Christ, you know, you can't measure Christ by Christ. So we'll, we'll just say, like, Paul is at the top of my growth in Christ-likeness. And uh, we need a base bottom line. By the way, this is the beginning of my chart would be salvation here. And sanctification or I'm sorry, uh, uh, glorification over here. All right? And uh, we need a bottom line. If Paul's at the top of my chart, anybody, any ideas for the bottom? And I always say, I think we could agree that Hitler is at the bottom. All right? That's the, that's the least. All right? So if I'm going to grow in Christ, my growth in Christ goes like this. So I get saved, and I start growing. Right? And immediately you can observe a couple things about my line. What do you observe? It's going up. What else do you observe? It's also going up and down, right? Yes, yeah, it's wiggling, right? And then I, I keep going, right? And then I, I always tell the teens, and then you go, off to, oh, I, I, you go off to camp, right? And then you come back from camp, and then you finish <laughs> off your life, right? And that is how it is. Now, here, here we grow that out, and that, that is true. But, and this is now getting more technical even than I probably should be going. But right here, if I'm going to draw out a line like that, that line is called the line of mean regression. That's what mathematicians tell me. Right? So I am growing. And I'll often ask people, what is the second most important question in the world today? Now, first you've got to answer what's the first most important question. What's the first most important question? Are you saved? <laughs> That's the first most important question. What's the second most important question? And all the teens and college students that are single say, who are you going to marry? No, that's not. What's the second most important question? Are you growing? And the third question then is, how do you grow? And the answer to how you grow is actually found right here in this verse. And that second most important question is answered, I trust, by that third question as I follow, how do I grow, right there in that passage. Sorry if you've seen my chart before, but there it is again. All right, let's close with a word of prayer. I didn't plan to use that chart, but you can draw it out again. All right. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for the time we can spend in your word and studying out uh, what you have to give to us um, from this passage in 2 Peter. Lord, may we be ever vigilant.